0: Dear Father, we believe you. We lay all these requests at your feet. Thank you. In your Son's name, amen. Well, we're going to start a new book study. It's going to be the book of Luke. We've taken down our fancy little hideout. Now we're going back to adult church again, and that means serious Bible study. So we're going to go into serious Bible study. And as a serious preacher, I need to begin the correct way by beginning with a poem. So I'll begin with a poem. Here it is. Nibbling on sponge cake, watching the sun bake. Most of the tourists covered with oil. Strumming my six-string on my front porch, swing, smelling those shrimp, they're beginning to boil. And if you know the rest of that poem, shame on you. Shame on you. If you, many of you know what that poem is, it's a song about something about margaritas or something like that. And my roommate loved that song. In my senior year in college, I had a car, I lived in a house with six guys, and I was the only guy in that house that had a, car that moved. There were some cars that just stayed there. Mine moved. You could actually step on the accelerator and it would move. So some of my roommates said, hey, let's take the weekend off. Let's go on a road trip. And I had had one roommate that said, I got a great idea. And we were going to school at Southern Ohio at the time. He goes, let's drive all the way down to the Florida Keys because I heard Jimmy Buffett, who sings that song about margaritas, he often will take his boat and go about two or three miles off ashore, throw his anchor down, put his amps up, just strum his guitar, and all these other boats will come and dock and just hang out all day long next to Jimmy Buffett's boat, just listening to his music. Cheeseburger in Paradise, Come Monday, great song. I had another housemate that said, there's only one problem with that idea. We don't have a boat. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. And I said, but what if there's a storm? What what does Jimmy Buffett do in a storm? I want to use this analogy because I think our American culture, especially our Christian culture, our evangelical culture, has lived sort of in this, what I'm going to call this affluent nice, warm, breezy culture where nothing, we just have all the time in the world to what I'm going to call experiment when it comes to doctrine, faith, what I believe. What happens when the storm comes in Christianity, when really we are starting to be not just ostracized, but mocked and not even allowed anymore? What happens? Where do you go? Where do you bring your boat to safe harbor. The reason why I talk about this culture is I just read this quote a couple days ago. One writer says, in the past 20 years, Christian doctrine and denominationalism has been thrown up for grabs. It's in anything goes. In fact, polls show that 70% of Americans believe any kind of religion is okay. 70%. 70%. 1924, 91% of Americans said Christianity was the only true religion. Now it's only 41%. And I believe we're in this experimentation age when doctrine, hey, let's think, let's think like this. Like you used to not want to be called a heretic. Now... Badge of honor if I'm a heretic. I'm thinking new ideas. It's up for grabs. Denomination, up for grabs. Church structure is up for grabs. The way you practice church now is up for grabs. And even there's this new movement of Christians which are called the done. I'm just done. I'm just done. It's as if they're done experimenting and they just are tired. The problem with this whole idea of up for grabs and experimentation, that I'm going to call it, it has three byproducts that are deadly. The first one is this whole idea of novelty and new is all that matters to us anymore. We want to hear something new. Just tell it to me different. I don't want tradition. Just give me something new. We're always looking for new. The problem when you're always looking for new is you're never never satisfied with the now. It's kind of how we eat. We have so many different restaurant options. What's interesting? Where some countries, if you just give them rice, they're happy. Give me something new. Second problem is certainty is looked down upon. If you think you know something for sure, especially in our American church, if you think you know something for sure, people are sure you know nothing. I'll give you a perfect illustration. One of the coolest things, if you ask parents these days and you say, hey, do you teach your kid the Bible or take them to church? A lot of parents will say this, I'm going to wait till they're old enough to choose that for themselves. I'm going to let them decide what they want to believe. Then you should ask the parents, do you teach them, send them to school to learn math? Well, they better do good in their grades. Do you send them to the practice for basketball and football? Yeah, their jump shot stinks. They need to know. How about their faith? I'll let them decide. That's all up for grabs, experimentation, Jimmy Buffett theology. The third thing, I think, is the worst part of it all. And I, I actually I feel bad about this for myself. Sometimes I think our children no longer know things we knew. They no longer know the things we just knew. When certainty is lost, when everything has to be new, when we're always experimenting, what we lose is we actually lose things called, you know, that's sinful and that will be judged. Well, I'm not sure. I'll give you an illustration. About 10 years ago, one of these experimenters of faith, his name's Brian McLaren. There's a big movement back in that day of postmodern Christianity. But somebody asked Brian McLaren what he thought of homosexuality. And Brian McLaren's a nice guy. He really is. He's a good guy. And he said this. This was back in 2006. He said, you know what? I don't know what I think about it right now. I really think we as an evangelical church, we need to put a five-year moratorium on, our, on making a choice on that. And maybe after five years, if we're not sure yet, we can put another five-year moratorium on it. We, we need to just... Have a conversation about it. What's interesting, that was 2006 and 2012. Brian McLaren did a wedding for his son, who happened to be marrying a man. So I think he already kind of had his mind made up. To me, culturally, I believe we don't have the luxury of just floating anymore. I believe a storm is coming. I believe a storm is going to be waged against what we really believe in the depths of our soul, and I believe you need to know, and if you're not, you're going to be taken out into this cultural sea of just whatever, which really ends up in nothing. I was actually at Moody's Founders Week, and Ravi Zacharias was one of the speakers, and he's brilliant. I'm just telling you, he's brilliant. And he talked about, you know what? People say Christians are arrogant for being exclusive. Did you know every other religion is exclusive? Every other one. If you talk to a Muslim, I'm telling you, if you don't do it his way, you're not in. You might even get your head cut off. Ask your teacher. You know, people say Christians are arrogant for thinking they know the truth. You should tell your teacher he's arrogant for teaching you truth. Why did you give, why did you flunk me? I had a different answer for that. I just, I don't like your answers, teacher. That won't go over too well. He won't say he's arrogant. He's just telling the truth. So in my mind, what we need is certainty. We need a safe harbor. We need something to stand on that solid ground. And that's what the book of Luke is. It is a solid piece of ground, which tells us about the person that we need to anchor our lives to. Actually, Luke chapter 1, 1 through 4 is the introduction to his book. And the title I'm going to call this sermon is Certainty, because that's what Luke is saying. That's his reason for writing Luke. So we will be certain about what to believe. Listen to what he says, Luke 1, 1 through 4. Verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. So according to verse 4, he says, I am compiling, I'm writing a story that already has been passed on and written about, but I'm just making it more precise for you, done some research. I'm going to make it an orderly account so after you get this Theophilus, you'll know. You'll be sure. So let's jump into this. Who's Luke? Quickly, Luke, most uh, writers all would agree, what I would say conservative writers agree, that Luke was the same man that Paul mentioned in Colossians 4.14. Paul says, our dear friend Luke. So Luke was Paul the Apostle's friend. He went on many trips with Paul. Paul was the guy that was Saul, changed over to Paul. Went on mission trips with Paul. Above all, he was Paul's friend. That would be quite an honor to be called Paul's friend. Second thing, Luke was a doctor. By that term, um, back in the day, they didn't have like ear, throat, and nose doctors. They didn't have, you know, your cancer doctors or brain surgeons. They just had general practitioners that were they were learned men who would study wide ranges. And one thing he studied was physiology, so he's a general physician. He was also a writer who had beautiful Greek. If you compared his Greek to even John and Mark, they say Lukes is exquisite Greek. He's, he's a learned man. Not only that, but he was a historian. You have the book of Luke, and you have the book of Acts. Acts was also written by Luke. It's volume one is Luke. Volume two is Acts. And both of them are historical accounts. Even to the degree where people, one writer said, Luke is one of the greatest ancient historians known to man. I like to look at Luke kind of like a Leonardo da Vinci. He's a master of all kind of different trades. He was a scholar. He had experience. And then the fourth, uh, third thing is he also was very influential. He is this friend here, in verse 3, called Most Excellent Theophilus. Some writers believe it's a general term of Christians because Theophilus means loved by God. So maybe he's talking to all Christians who are in the mind of God, excellent, loved by God. But I take Theophilus to be a real person with a high honor, being most excellent. So probably Theophilus had a high position, high standing, and Luke knew him. And so he's writing this book to Theophilus to inform him more on the Christian faith, but also to help him as he shares the Christian faith. If you remember in the book of Acts, there's this guy Apollos. Apollos would argue for the faith, and then he would get help because he needed to get more information so he knew the story of the gospel more accurately, and that's what I think is happening here fourth thing we can say about Luke is he was a genuine follower of Christ. He was a believer. If you look in verse um, 1, it says, to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Luke isn't just writing history. He's not writing a boring history text. He's using history to show how it fulfilled God's will, the way the ASV says what's been accomplished. What that means is how God's plan has been accomplished through Christ. So he's more than a historian, more than a writer. He's an evangelist who wanted to compel people to believe in Christ. So that's the first thing we could say. This Luke feels compelled. He writes, it's good for me. So he read, researched, conducted interviews, journaled himself. So he could inform those who he loved about Christ. He carried this burden to tell. Have you ever had the burden to tell other people this story? I believe the more certain you are of this story, the more compelled you will be to want to share it. What's sad about, like I was looking at my own life and I was thinking in the past 10, 15 years, I would read a lot of books on these postmodern arguments. And I realized I got more caught up into these arguments than I did in telling people this story. I remember when I was first a Christian, i write my sister Tammy, my oldest sister. I wanted her to believe so badly. I just had to sit down. I wrote her a 10-page letter, small handwriting, and I just, Tam, you got to believe this. I wrote my sister Gina in California. I wrote my cousin Tanya. You've got to believe this story because I was convinced of it. And over time, I just feel like my I wasn't as compelled. It's funny, in Jeremiah, he writes it like this. He, he had a burden to tell it. He says in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 7, There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I cannot, I am growing weary of holding this in. I cannot hold it in. Have you ever felt like that, where this story is so important you got to tell it? Actually, what's what's interesting, if you look in verse uh, 1, or verse 2, it says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, NIV says, has handed it down. And one commentator says, the idea in a Greek is, that Luke is trying to take Jesus' story and rescue it from oblivion. I love that phrase, rescue from oblivion. What he means by this is if people don't pass the information on to the next generation, who will? If you don't tell your kids, who will? It'll be lost to them. You need to rescue the story from oblivion. It needs to be something that compels you what, what do you share? What do you share with your, What do you share with those you love? Do you share the story of Star Wars and Darth Vader and you put on that mask in your house and breathe heavy <sighs> Dad, why are you doing that? Because you need to know the story of Star Wars. It's so important. You need to know about Luke Skywalker. He was a great guy. What? Well, if you don't like that, Lord of the Rings is even better. And if you don't like that, why don't you tell him about the eight point buck that you shot up in the UP? Have you you probably told stories like that? Because they stir your heart. Does Jesus' story stir your heart? I really believe and I'm convinced of this. Dinner table stories have more weight in the heart of your children than Sunday school class. Dinner table stories have more weight in the heart of your children than Sunday school class. And I can remember my dad's stories. But Sunday school class, I don't necessarily remember it. We share what stirs our heart. Maybe this is the church's problem. It stirred Luke's heart. And you know what stirred Luke's heart about the book of Luke? What stirred his heart is that this is a story for everybody, from a guy named Theophilus who was titled most excellent down to this widow of Nain who lost her son, and she's a poor little widow. This was for people that were both Gentiles and Jews. This was for women and men and prostitutes, and tax collectors. This is a story that was for everybody. And they needed to know it. So he shared the story because this person named Jesus, he was convinced that he lived. Convinced. Are you convinced about him? Because I believe Luke wrote this book to to help you even be more certain so you can bank on these stories. Look at verse 4 again. Just listen to what he wrote. Verse 3 says, I'm writing this orderly account. That means a detailed sequential account. I'm writing this to you most excellent Theophilus. So that, or that you may have certainty about the things you've been taught. This word certainty means Safety, stability, and solid foundation to stand on. It will, in a very real way, like a safe harbor, it will protect you because it's truly true. It's amazingly true. This is not, this is not inviting you into the conversation where we can dialogue and we can kind of share opinions. This is not um, just a good thought. Luke really believes this is true. And if you see this as true, it will utterly change your life. There is one story, honestly, that I was so glad even to go, Bill, it was so cool to go to Israel this year and just be in a Sea of Galilee because that one story where Jesus is in a boat in a Sea of Galilee, it just overwhelms me. Jesus is sleeping in the boat, a storm comes up, and Peter, who's been living his whole life on a Sea of Galilee, said, we're going to die. So that's a statement that this is a bad storm if a sailor thinks he's going to die. And it says Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat. It says he woke up. And when he woke up, he looked at the sky, and Jesus said, shut up. And it went still. The reason why, if that's true, That means, if I have a problem that I think I'm going to die, or I think I can't figure it out, or I have no way of overcoming this, I have somebody on my side that can wake up and tell my problem to just shut up, if he really lived. If he did not live, and as some really cool emergent writers say, this is a myth. A myth is greater than the truth. No, it isn't. The truth is amazing. If this God really lives, oh, man, he can take care of any problem. God. So Luke wants you to be certain. Well, how how can I be certain? Ah, how can I be certain? He get, he offers 3 three, I'm going to say reasons, ideas, or evidences. You can say proofs. I'm not going to say proofs as much as, Warrants that this book's a believable book. The first one is this is that he has researched it and he's taking it from eyewitness accounts. Let's listen to what it says in verse one. Inasmuch as many, many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers. So what he's saying is there's widespread widespread eyewitness accounts, many. Who are those many? Well, you have Mark, you have Matthew Mark. Mark was, people believe, the first writer who really Matthew and Luke got some material from. You have a lady by the name of Mary, who is Jesus' mom. And it said she stored up things in her heart. I think she knew what she stored. One of my favorite uh, passages is in the book of Acts, chapter 26, verse 26. Paul is talking to King Agrippa, and he's telling him the story of Jesus. And he looks at King Agrippa, and he says, You know the story. Not only that, but the events of the story, they weren't done in a corner. What he means by that is people know this story. It's top-page news. This is headline news. You know this story? So at the time Luke was writing this, he had a lot of people he would talk to and get information from who were first-hand eyewitnesses. Every news story you get is because of a first-hand eyewitness. Second thing is he did his own personal investigation. So he writes, verse 3, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely. So that means he really took his time. And he had to find out for himself. He did his own research. He spent years with foremost Christians of the age. In the book of Acts, you'll see there are these we accounts. And what we accounts are is when you read Luke, you'll you'll start seeing... Paul, we, traveled, we, includes the writer along with Paul. Luke's the writer, so Luke is saying many times he was on mission trips with Paul. Some of these we accounts are amazing. He was with Paul when he met this Lydia who dealt with Purple, and he invited uh, Paul and Luke into her house where their family believed the gospel. Some of these accounts are where this guy named Eutychus, he fell out of a window. He was listening to the longest, you think my sermons are bad? Eutychus was in a window, and it says he fell asleep, and he fell out, and he died. And Paul interrupted his sermon for a couple minutes, went down, laid on top of him, breathed him back to life, and Eutychus came back up. I think he's a little bit more awake in that window. Luke saw it. Luke saw it. You don't think that impressed Luke? Luke also met this guy named James. James had a brother named Jesus. Could you imagine talking to Jesus' brother? Yeah, growing up with Jesus was tough. We always were compared to him. I don't understand it. I once read, uh, I forget who the writer was. He's saying, could you imagine uh, eating with Jesus? and All of a sudden the family's looking at him and he's slurping his soup and one of the people at the table says, that's God eating soup. Kind of weird to think about. Luke also met, well, he was on a shipwreck. One time Paul got shipwrecked and he floated to the island of Malta. Luke was there with him and said Paul reached his hand into the fire and a snake bit him. Man, shook that snake off and he's, he's all right. You can still hear the dialogue. Paul, how do you, how'd you do that? Well, I saw him do it in West Virginia. I'm okay. Don't worry about it. But Luke saw that, so you can imagine him writing. I have found, so Luke, Luke did personal research. You know what I have found? The biggest critics and the cynics have usually never done any research. Most of the time. If you ask them, like, here's the biggest thing they'll say is, the Bible's contradictory, it contradicts itself all the time. Where? where? Could you tell me Where? Uh, I don't know. You know, what about the shellfish thing, huh? Do you know anything about Mosaic Law? Do you understand how Christ now is the end of the Mosaic Law? Do you, under- well, Do you understand that? No, I don't know. So, so what you're telling me is you're making arguments of ignorance. Right? Jesus even said to most of his critics, you know, your your problem is you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. The third thing I just want to bring up briefly is there's this whole thing called textual criticism. There's a big movement called, it was called, uh, you know, the search for the historical Jesus. They've been doing it now for the last 200 years and it gets into all these German scholarship and all this stuff that, We're trying to find the real Jesus. One writer put it like this, how do we know if you took a camcorder of Jesus and filmed him as he walked down the streets in Israel, how do we know it's this book is like that? I think some just men wrote this book so they could have power over other men and women. They set up this patriarchal white Caucasian system of power. First of all, what I find interesting about that where if... You believe these books are written to get you power? Did you know that most of the people in the first generation Christians died? Got martyred? What kind of power is that? They weren't too rich either. So that statement always has made me scratch my head. But there's this one statement when it comes to sexual criticism saying, you know how you can tell if a document is accurate? There's these things that are called dissimilarity and embarrassment. This is what it means a group that is fabricating history, meaning if I wanted to write a story to fool you, a group that is fabricating history is unlikely to invent a story that would be dissimilar and embarrassing to himself. Meaning, if I wrote you a story, I would only write out of my knowledge of the way things are, and I'd try to impress you, not embarrass myself. So you'd believe me. And this one writer says that Really, everything about Jesus, for the most part, was not just dissimilar, but it was rather embarrassing. First of all, Jesus was from Galilee. What leader comes out of Galilee? Nazareth, this teeny little city. Not only that, was Nazareth with this hillbilly city, but people in Nazareth didn't even want Jesus around. It says a prophet's not even welcome in his own hometown. So he's kicked out of Nazareth, which really has no credentials in the first place. What kind of prophet's that? Second thing that I found is they said really the disciples he gathered were strange. They were fishermen. Guys who lived their whole life with leathery, dark skin and didn't have much money, they lived off of fish. And the money they got from selling, it's not too lucrative of a business. That wouldn't impress somebody in the halls of Jerusalem. Tax gatherers, seriously, tax gatherers, you want them to follow you? Another embarrassing thing is his methods as a rabbi. Rabbis, they said back in the day, would gain a following, and people would choose to follow him, kind of like Twitter account. Man, a celebrity at the most Twitter people that are following him is the coolest celebrity. The rabbi has the most followers. He's the most popular. He's the one you need to listen to. Jesus chose his followers, and he didn't choose many. And the ones he chose, again, fishermen, tax collectors, And as a rabbi, he said weird things like, you need to hate your family as compared to me. Most rabbis wanted to include, wanted to uplift the family life. Jesus was sounding like he wanted to tear it apart. One time he said, if you don't let the dead bury the dead, you come follow me. Man, that's not encouraging family life at all. So these scholars are saying, really, Jesus was kind of like a square in a square peg in a round hole back if you want to compare them to what real rabbis are like. You wouldn't write like that. It has a ring of embarrassment to it. So it has to be true. That's what textual critics would say. And I just mentioned that so you know that I, I do my research. See? Press, press it. Anyhow. So Luke says, I write this book because I want you to be certain. I write this book because Jesus fulfilled everything of the Father. Now to the cynic and the critic, and even those people that are done with Christianity and just want to keep experimenting or just don't want to land on solid ground, I ask you this question. I want to end on this question. What other story... What other story do you have that even comes close to this story? What other story is out there that gives you any hope, that gives you any certainty, or answers your deepest need for meaning and purpose? What other story? Evolution? Really? You come from an ape who shaves? Really? That's your story? It's funny. Most most evolutionists are environmentalists, and why do they want to save the earth? And the fir- who cares? Who cares? Well, generations that are coming after me. Well, they might revert back to to fishing. Who cares? Doesn't give you any meaning. Well, my story is I believe in Zeus and. Hades, and he had a brother named Poseidon, you know. You've seen the movies. It's really cool. They made millions of dollars. It's a joke. That's how the Greeks and the Romans would try to explain reality that they were confused about. So they made up this really stupid thing. How about a Hinduism or Buddhism, especially with reincarnation? Have you ever talked to somebody who believes in reincarnation? Usually, I'm just going to tell you, usually they will tell you they were somebody amazing in the past, like Cleopatra, where they were some king, and they want to re- regain that position. How come nobody ever tells you they were a maggot back in the past? What, why not? It's a ridiculous belief system. Actually, it's a cruel belief system. You know what my, sto- you know what my story is? There's a man that uh, he could walk on water. People saw it. He, uh, He died for me. And he rose again. And this man, he fulfilled, oh, hundreds of scriptures that were written seven to a thousand years before he even came to the same city he'd be born in. And this man told his disciples that he would die and rise again on the third day. And he did. And he says that uh, he's come to give life. That story is amazing to me. What do you got that's better than that? Sometimes we got to throw the ball in other people's courts. And we got to almost be like a newspaper editor and say, all right, you tell me your story, but I get to attack it. Actually, there was, I had a good friend. And we did that. He came into my office, and he didn't believe the Christian story. And I said to him, all right, I will give you books to read if you give me books to read. But I get to level the same kind of tack that you level in the Bible. And we'll see which story's better. And if your story's better, in my mind, you have a moral obligation to tell the world about that story. Because if your story's the truth, you can't let people languish in lies, can you? So one time he brought this one story and he said, I don't know if I believe it too much, but here's the gist of it. Talking about some spiritual lady on TV and she believes that when we die we all go into this kind of like ooze where our soul is but our soul up there can look down on the earth and it can choose what kind of life it wants for its next existence. So it looks down and it gets to choose. And I I think that's a, good, that's a pretty neat idea. And I said, um, if you think about it, that's one of the cruelest things you've ever thought about. He said, what do you mean? So you mean to tell me before a, a let's, let's say you take a kid who lived in Africa who's got flies all over and he's got a big belly because he's starving, and he's got no mom and dad because they died of AIDS. Let's say you take that kid, so you're telling me he chose that life? If he chose that life, then I shouldn't have any compassion on him. How about women that get raped? They chose that? That is the cruelest thing you could ever tell somebody. I once heard one writer talk about karma, where if I come back, if I, if, I, if I want to come back as a better species, I need to be the best I can now so some people who are beggars in India will cut off their arms so they'll become better in the next life. Who, who's, who, who builds the hospitals? Hindus? No. The Christians build the hospitals. Other people's stories don't work. And they're cruel often. What story is better than an account that's been written 2,000 years ago and people are still trying to slam it? It's still the bestseller. And it has some of the most brilliant defenders you ever met in your life. Last two days ago, was it Moody Founders Week? One of the speakers was this guy by the name of Ravi Zacharias. Have you ever heard of him? He's kind of smart. He's on our team. He was in the UN a couple months ago, and he said he was asked to give a message in the UN on the importance of uh, morality in a relativistic world. And he didn't think anybody showed up, and he said it was full of delegates from the UN. And he talked about how Christ is the answer. And he said afterwards, this guy from a communist country came up to him, and he said, uh, Mr. Zacharias, I, uh, I didn't know why I, I was sent to the U.N. I didn't want to go. My government made me go. And he said, now after listening to you, now I know why I'm sent, because I need Jesus as my Savior. We have some pretty smart people on our side. We're not just ignorant Fools for believing a man by the name of Christ came. He's amazing and he's the truth. So we're going to learn about him. Read your Bible because I'm telling you, it'll give you a firm foundation. Jared, if you guys could come on up and I'll pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you, God, for your gospel. We thank you for, Father, I thank you for your Holy Spirit who confirms things in our hearts, that opens our eyes to truth, that gives us uh, solid ground to stand on in a world that is just being tossed by waves, storms coming, people are being tossed, and they're losing their souls. Help us, Father, in our study of Luke to cling tight to your son to do all we can to learn about him and to be faithful to the text. Other than that, God, thank you for Jesus. And it's his name we pray.